Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, a podcast where we go beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson, ready to take things international by welcoming our second guest who hails from Canada. But before we bring him on, allow me to introduce our host, who lives in Canada's backyard. Mr. Michael Warren, how are you, sir? Brent, I'm doing good, man. How are you today? It's uh, a lovely fall day here in the state of Tennessee. You know, it's it's pretty daggone nice in Michigan, but I have to tell you, I'm a little bit nervous about today. Oh, Lord, why? Uh, because our guest has a skill, we shall call it, that I'll talk about later, we'll talk about together. But oh. that skill causes me a little bit of concern because so when someone is skilled at what he's skilled at, it is dangerous for someone to have a conversation with him. So I have a little bit of trepidation. I know what you're referring to, and that is what they call in the biz a tease. So I like that. <laughs> See, that's how I roll, buddy. But what can you tell us about our guest today? Our guest today got uh, an early start in his career by joining the Canadian Forces at just 17 years old. He then served with the Calgary Police Service for over 20 years before transitioning into a career as a public speaker and consultant where he shares his knowledge that he's gained over the years on how to deliver dynamic and memorable presentations. His book, Kick-Ass Presentations, Wow Audiences with PowerPoint Slides That Click, Humor That's Quick, and Messages That Stick was just released this past March. He joins us from the hometown of the legendary Hart Wrestling family. I was so excited I got to include that. All the way from Calgary, Alberta. Please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Dan Frazier. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Brent. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. This is this is awesome. You can tell that uh, we as a crew don't get out much because it's the little things in life that get us excited, like being able to talk about wrestling families and stuff. Uh, but I would be remiss. I would be remiss if I didn't wish you because as we record today, as we record this episode, it is Thanksgiving Day in Canada. So happy Thanksgiving, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. I was trying to think what, what a Canadian could be thankful for. And since it's it's early in October, probably thankful there hasn't been a blizzard yet. Thank you for joining us on your holiday. It's a pleasure having you. It's been a while. We haven't seen each other since Aelita. That's right. Uh, we're going to talk about your book later, but uh, the book was released right around uh, Aelita conference time. And we'll get into that. But let's jump right into things. And Brent talked about it in your intro. You joined the Canadian military at uh, a young age. Well, what drove you to, to join at such a young age. Yeah, I, uh, I actually, I was in, involved in sort of the scouting movement. So in Canada, it's not that it's, you know, Boy Scouts of Canada and Ventures. And I had a couple of guys who were friends of mine who were a little older and they joined the military. And I thought, as soon as I can do that, I want to do it. And in Canada, you can join the reserve forces. So that's sort of the, I guess it would be the equivalent to um, National Guard type of thing. Like it's your, your training over the summer and then it's really geared towards university students. And uh, I was able to join that at 
yeah, t- 17. So there I was uh, between 11th and 12th grade on my summer holidays, spending 10 weeks at the battle school, learning to become a, an infantry soldier. And uh, that really uh, uh, left a, a mark on me. And uh, I had a bit of family history with service. Uh, my both grandfathers served in World War II. And, and one of my grandfathers met my grandmother when he was with the Manitoba Dragoons uh, just after D-Day. He liberated my grandmother's town of Ostend, Belgium. And that's where he met her and he brought her back back to uh, the farm in Canada. And uh, yeah, it's always uh, always been one of those things I, I wanted to do uh, right from being a little kid. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, it's taking everything in my being not to go down a rabbit hole because I love studying and reading about World War II, uh, especially uh, the European theater. So that is a fantastic family history moment right there. And so maybe we'll have you back on and we'll talk about that later on. But uh, so you were infantry then? Infantry soldier. Yeah. I, and of course, going in, I didn't know anything about the various branches or whatever. I just thought, you know, everybody's a soldier kind of thing. And then you get into the infantry and and then realize all the divisions and how everybody thinks that they're the best, et cetera. <laughs> so, you know, I could I could rip on all the other uh, trades, but really every everybody's important. And uh, I, I'm glad I was infantry. It was, you know, they have the characteristic, at least in the Canadian forces, of kind of doing things the hard way. Yes. You know, it's you spend a lot of time wandering around in the dark in the rain and practicing to be cold wet tired and hungry kind of thing so you know that was uh, it was a great time I will tell you, uh, share something here. Uh, I also was infantry in, right. in the army. We called 11 Bravo. Uh, we call them the ground pounders, you know, and I was trying to think what the infantry folk in Canada may be called. And so maybe snow stompers. You know, I was just trying to come up with, with some, <laughs> something that was unique to Canada. And, and Brent, you, you and I have talked about this several times before. I continue to be amazed by the people that we talk to, the people that we meet that in many cases have had a lifetime of public service. I mean, public service for Dan started at 17, and I'm humbled by the servant's heart that these folks have. Let's get into it. Obviously, at some point, you made the decision that you wanted to be a police officer. So, so yeah. how did that come about? It was a thing where I, my my dad is now retired from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the, the Mounties. And uh, policing just never had that allure to me, maybe because I was too close to it because my dad did it. Uh, always had a lot of respect for it, but there just wasn't that much mystery there. And there were some things I thought I wanted to do in the Army, like becoming a search and rescue technician and doing some of this high-speed, low-drag stuff. And then when I got into the military, I realized some of the stuff I wanted to do is many years away where I'm going to have to spend, you know, the next decade as uh, as a pound in the ground and, you know, suffering under a heavy rucksack just to get the opportunity to do some of the stuff I wanted. And I, I quickly made a turn in my last year of high school and said, no, I, I want to do law enforcement and went into university for criminal justice and continued doing the army thing. And then, uh, you know, eventually I got hired by the Calgary police. I'd only ever been to this city twice in my life uh, prior to that. Uh, but I knew I wanted to stay on the west end of, of Canada. And this is about as far east as I was willing to go. And I ended up getting hired when I was 22 and didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, I was, it wasn't the youngest in my class, but for sure at the, at the low end. So, and I tried to do the army and the policing at the same time. That was really challenging. And and the uh, sergeant major of the unit that I was in here in Calgary sat me down and he goes, look, we've got 
a bunch of cops that are in this unit, none of them ever show up for anything. So don't waste your time and don't waste our time. Like if you if you can do it, great. But if you if you can't, then it's time to, to bow out. That was my cue. And I kind of thought, you know, the police actually replaced for me a lot of the things that I really liked about the army. The same like high caliber of people, the camaraderie, the tactics, the decision making, the all these things that I liked about the military, everything but putting camouflage, pay, you know, face paint on and crawling around in the mud. Uh, uh, everything, everything else. Uh, it was, it was a good time to transition. I want to uh, just point out something here. You notice that Dan made the point, pointing out he was young, but he wasn't the youngest person in his in his police academy class. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a guest on that pointed out she made a point, a big point of. I was older than most of my classmates, uh, but I wasn't the oldest. Right? It's like nobody wants to be uh, the one at either end of the spectrum. I think you put that very, very well. There are similarities, but there are differences. For my benefit and for the benefit of our listeners, what's Calgary like as a town? How would you describe it? Wow. Uh, so it's it's a bigger city in Canada. We're, we're pushing, uh, you know, 1.5 million, uh, right now. So it's a lot of, it's hard to compare to some other cities, like say in the United States, because the cities tend to grow up, but then they start bumping into other smaller cities. Whereas Calgary, if you imagine it's, we're just on the Eastern slope of the Rocky mountains. We have got nothing but farmers fields around and the cities that are close by or towns that are close by are still a ways away. So we're just growing like, you know, urban sprawl and like mold on a sandwich out into the the prairie. So our city, our city's much much bigger. And we we hosted the uh, Winter Olympic Games back in 1988. The city was half the population then. So it's it's growing quite a bit. It's really the white collar capital, I guess, of the uh, Alberta oil industry. It's probably more on the conservative side. We're often we're often compared to Texas in a way. <laughs> well, I saw there's a lot of films made there. there I guess there's an incentive to, to film there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, certainly a lot in the mountains around Calgary, like The Revenant and uh, some shows like that. And I'm actually uh, I'm going to be involved in uh, the next season of Fargo, actually, that's uh, that's being filmed here, which is very cool. Uh, being involved in, in an official capacity, not being arrested for being on set when you shouldn't <laughs> be or something like that, right? Well, that, yeah, we... <laughs> That hasn't it hasn't happened yet, but yeah, I'm uh, I, I was I was lucky enough to force Gump my way into uh, a role as a, as a police technical advisor. Uh, so nice. I'm I'm happy to be uh, yeah given my input on, on that. So yeah, the reason I bring it up is because when a lot of people hear Calgary, uh, me being one of them, I think of something like Calgary Stampede, uh, right. you know, Texas thing, and it gives this illusion that perhaps it's not this major city, but that, that number one, that's a major event. A major event in a big city context. Well, and the reason I ask you that is because you made this transition from the military goal to a police career. How was policing different than what you thought it was going to be like? I mean, because RCMP is a little bit different than a city cop. How was it different than what you were hoping for or what you thought it was going to be? Well, you know, coming from the military, uh, I thought that, you know, the military training was good. And then I got into the Calgary police and I was just absolutely blown away at the caliber of the instructors, especially the tactics instructors. And uh, what I really liked is that they were 
really educated on not only what they did, but why they did it and what else is going on in North American law enforcement, what the other options are. And it wasn't to do as I say, because I say it, or there is only one method. It's very much, you know, hey, this is why we've chosen to do it. There are many ways that we can be effective at this, but this is what we've chosen to do. And this is why we're training you in this way. And it was just such a, a refreshing look at training to really understand the why behind things. And of course, you guys have had uh, Brian Willis on here as a guest. I was fortunate enough that he was running all of the police tactics training when I went through the academy. Uh, and still, you know, he's been one of those mentors to me all the way along. And just some other really, really world-class people like Chris Butler, who's uh, very involved with force science still, you know, an excellent, excellent trainer. So I, I had a leg up right from the get-go. And that would probably be the biggest thing for me was um, just the, the type of training. And I was fortunate in when I was in university to really discover that my purpose is to collect wisdom and then use that wisdom to empower others. And when I got into policing, I was very much, you know, okay, I'm going to do SWAT type stuff. And, you know, I, if I can be repelling from a skylight or whatever, that's what I want to do. And then I, I, I got into policing and realized, no, I can really have an impact here by becoming a trainer. That's sort of what I set my mind to. And it, it took me nine years, but eventually I was able to uh, go and work directly with guys like Brian Willis and, and Chris Butler as a full-time tactics instructor in our academy. How old were you when you started to do training? Because it sounds like you were a little bit younger than most trainers, I would assume. Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough in the military to take their instructor courses and do some and do some teaching there. And then in the police department, I looked to get into doing that as soon as I could. So probably within two years of being on the job, I was teaching control tactics and then, you know, slowly building up little instructor certifications and looking for any opportunity that I could to improve myself, to get in front of other officers and you know, hopefully make them better. The reason why I asked about age is, uh, did you ever run into uh, older officers who say, who's this young upcoming buck who's trying to tell us what to do? Yeah, of course. I think that most of those people are, are probably going to question who's ever at the start, at the front of the class. Yeah, you know, you're going to run into to a lot of people who, regardless of who's up there, they're going to be training hostages. They do not want to be there. And really, as I, as I went along in my career, I really tried to make the training that I delivered, put my own spin on it or create it in a way where I don't have people checking out or just sitting there with their arms crossed and, and you know, oh, this is this is a bunch of BS or what, you know, what time is lunch and really make it entertaining. You know, Johnny Carson says that people will pay more to be entertained than they will to be educated. And so if we can bring a little bit of that fun into it and also show them why it's important, all of a sudden you get people sitting forward in their seats, even if they're those the old crusty guys who uh, don't think that the that the new guys have anything to teach them. Anybody who's listened to this podcast for any length of time uh, knows that I'm a dork. Uh, I'm, I'm going to cement that a little bit further because when you start talking about Brian Willis and you start talking about Chris Butler and you start talking about some of these people, those are the, the quote unquote, the rock stars of the law enforcement training world. And rightfully so, we hold those people in a place of reverence because they've earned it. But one of the things I've always appreciated about those folks is that they don't mind being challenged. So if you have that person that's sitting in the class and they say, well, you know, what does this person have to, man, they want you to challenge them. But when you challenge them, <laughs> you better know what you're talking about because you can rest assured that they do. And I appreciate that in an instructor. 
Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough just this last week to be doing some training with Chris Butler and we had a, a, a chance to sit and debrief this, this one week methods of instruction course for like three hours. And it's fun to sit with somebody like that who knows so much, but is also so open to feedback and going, Hey, how do we make this better? How do we, how do we turn up the awesomeness on every bit of this? And they're, they're not married to particular stuff. And if they are, then they question themselves as to why am I holding on to this so tight? And is there another way? And really that's like you said, Michael, has, has made them get to the place that they are because they're constantly challenging their own thinking. Well, you talked about Brian Willis and he, of course, was a guest of ours in an earlier episode. And you're actually a contributor to a book that he put out called If I Knew Then, Life Lessons from Cops on the Street. If you wouldn't mind, if you could, maybe share one or two you know, quick stories about one of those life lessons, if you don't mind. Wow. I got to think back to when I was, when I, when I wrote that stuff, I, and we'll put links to your book and Brian's book in yeah, the show notes, well, by course. the way, if folks yeah. want to read those. Yeah. And you know what, when you're thinking about the stories, you know, experience and time bring different reflections and maybe what was meaningful then maybe has changed or has morphed a little bit. But if you could go back and you could talk to, to a brand new Academy class, what do you wish you knew then? that you know now? Um, I believe the stuff that I contributed to Brian's book really was about rushing into situations and how there was a time in my career when first started, I was working in downtown Calgary. It was uh, it was busy and there were stolen cars seemingly everywhere. And I happened to be on a team of about a dozen officers and everybody had the same focus. Whenever we had a spare second, we were hunting for stolen cars and we would box these stolen cars in. It was this technique that wasn't taught that we just started doing on our own where, you know, we'd get uh, a car in front of them in traffic and on all four sides and basically they would so long as they stopped then we could go and arrest them and then and it was super fun and we did it all the time and there's high fives all around because we think that we're you know god's gift and uh, nobody's you know no bad guys are safe around us and then eventually realize that well the only reason we're catching these people is because they are choosing to stop and when when <laughs> the collective psyche of the uh, criminal population in Calgary started to go, wait a second, we don't need to stop. This car I'm in is stolen. I'll just ram my way out of this or I just won't even stop at all. We, we, you know, our success rate went way down. And so, you know, we're quick to, uh, to everybody's got carpal tunnel syndrome from high-fiving each other all over. And, and really, you know, we can, I, I can sit back now and go, okay, you know, there's, there's other ways that we can, we can do this. And public safety wise, there's other ways that we have to do this. To, uh, we can't rely on on that good luck anymore and hope that uh, bad guys are just going to, you know, present themselves and put their wrists out for us to put the cuffs on. Well, we, we had a guest on a few weeks ago. And one of the things he said that really hit home to me was we often forget that the bad guy always gets a vote. 100%. We base our tactics off of what we want to do. But we forget there's another person there. <laughs> and that person's their decision can have impact. When you look back over your career, though, Training truly is the opportunity for someone to make a much broader and longer lasting difference on the profession. If I come in, because I, I came in, you, you talked about, I want to do this and I want to do that. But that's a very small impact that you can make. But when I start training others so that they can go out and make those differences themselves, that's where we really start to see what we're doing as making a true difference. And have you ever had one of your students do something and maybe they told you or maybe you just realized 
that's a result of the training that we provided. Yeah. And that's, you know, probably one of the most rewarding things that has happened even on, on the job in general. Like you get thanks from the public, you get thanks from victims that you helped them, you know, investigate what they were involved in and that kind of thing. But to have other officers come back and say, thank you for that training, or I could hear your voice in my head, or I still remember being in your class and you said this, and it's, it was a long time ago. And that's when you realize that, yeah, you've got this potential for this impact to just like a drop of water or a, a stone in a pond just to ripple out. And sometimes you don't, you don't realize what those are till people do come back and, uh, and have those conversations with you. So, uh, I've been fortunate to have a number of those where, where officers come back after, you know, some situation or maybe an officer involved shooting and they go, you know what? It was just like training. Like my mind went back in the Rolodex of my mind under stress. It was my mind is going, I've been here before. You go, yeah, okay, we're doing we're doing something right, at least for that officer. And that has to be one of the most beautiful phrases to a trainer. It was just like training. I've already been there and I've already done that. In fact, I did it last week in training or I did it last month in training. So that, that I love that. Now, as Brent and I were doing our research, it appears at some point you came to be a part of a riot control group. What is that? And how did you come to be a part of that? Well, we, we've never had a full-blown riot in Calgary. We've been very, very lucky. So when I was a new officer, we were uh, Calgary was hosting something called the World Petroleum Congress that was going to happen in about 2000. And they needed officers. At that time, they had, they, they had the old riot squad and they were changing the name to the crowd control unit because riot squad is you know it wasn't pc they were taking officers who were basically off of just off of uh, probation which is us for 18 months and that had just happened for me and so i applied and got onto this unit and we got a bunch of budget where we got all this fancy new equipment and you know we didn't have to wear broom ball gloves and uh bat catchers <laughs> you know chest protectors and all this you know ridiculous stuff when i look back on it. And then I was involved with that unit, which is a, a part-time unit for the rest of my career. And that was actually, there's a lot of tie military ties because, you know, we would go every fall for, they had to, the unit was big enough. They couldn't take everybody at once. So it would be spread over a couple of weeks, but we would go up to an old air force base north of the city. And we would do, you know, mock riot training and we would bring role players out and we would be able to, you could use live tear gas and the whole, the whole nine yards. And after training, you're not going home. You're staying at the barracks and you're eating at the mess. And so that really attracted a lot of the ex-military types in the department to, to do that. And I was just very fortunate to be involved uh, doing specialty munitions type stuff for, for most of my time in there. And not not hoping there's a riot, but you know what it's like. You you uh, It's kind of like being on a football team and all you get to do is practice. And <laughs> yes. You can have some realistic scrimmages, but uh, you want to you wanna really test your skills. And, and I guess it's thankful that... Uh, throughout my career that I, I never had that opportunity. We had uh, Sergeant Justin Witt on the podcast a few episodes ago, Louisville Metro Police Department. He came on and he was discussing some of the riots that, that his agency faced. One of the things that he said disturbed him at the time was he was in the crowd as intelligence gatherer. And he says, watching the faces of his brothers and sisters in a riot situation with perhaps not all the training that they should have had, you know, it, it, like you talked about uh, the officer that says, hey, it was just like training. Well, that wasn't the case for them because they were given this gear and they were put on a line and now they have to deal with this as a trainer. 
should we expect our people to be able to perform under situations like that if we haven't properly prepared them? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, you can't blame the officers, certainly for riot training and stuff. With any training, we want to understand what the threat environment is going to be that they're going to be going into and then train to that and make it as realistic as possible so that when they are in that situation, their their mind is going, okay, this is, I know what to do here. This is familiar, been under that specific pressure before. And with riot training, man, that is tough. Logistically, to get everything right and to have role players and enough role players and all of the uh, the emotion and the chaos and everything that happens, it's very, very challenging to recreate that effectively in training. We certainly did our best to do that, but uh, I, I, I can't say that it's necessarily effective because we never got that test. But certainly, you know, grabbing, you know, regular patrol officers who have a certain skill set and then going, okay, put on a helmet or grab a shield or that kind of thing, we're, we're setting them up for failure, expecting that they're going to have a high performance. One of your roles was you were a full-time tactics instructor and you specialized in training the officers to communicate effectively with the public now, without naming names or anything like that. Can you kind of walk us through some of those specific situations where maybe you had an officer who communicating was a weak spot, but then through the training, you saw a 180 and this, this guy has turned things around. This is amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, I was actually tasked with working with uh, with an officer uh, who had a, a, a lot of complaints going on, and they said, "Can you can you do something to help this guy out?" And one of the the issues that he faced is that he didn't understand how he came across to people. And he goes, "Well, people complain about me because they don't like my face." Okay, well, maybe your facial expression <laughs> says some of it, but uh, we rolled up to a, a call where somebody had had their car broken into. And normally as patrol officers, we don't attend those. That's something that they can they can call in, they can get a case number for insurance. But there was a rock that was thrown through the window of the car. So when the dispatch looks at it, they go, well, there's the potential that maybe there's a fingerprint that we can get off this rock or some evidentiary value, which, which yeah, Michael's laughing like, oh yeah, yeah, well, all right, CSI, we'll go ahead and get, get a DNA sample off of a rock. You know, and who knows if this was a murder scene or something, that'd be different. But, uh, you know, and police have this expectation from being conditioned from television that that we've got all these resources. And so we basically were there to say, hey, we're sorry that this happened. You know, you've got the case number. Unfortunately, you're just going to have to go through insurance type of thing because there's really nothing for us to investigate. And we roll up and this officer rolls down his window about three inches. The, the victim's there. He's distraught. He's with his family. You know, it's it's not a big deal to us for somebody to have their car broken into. You might go to uh, all kinds of calls like that, but it's a big deal for this person. And uh, this guy walks up to the car and up to the passenger side, you know, looking at it from his perspective, what does it look like when the officer just rolls their window down a few inches and talks to you through this little gap? The victim walks up and this officer goes, what's up, bud? And I'm just going, oh my God. And so I said, okay, step out of the car and talk to this guy. So he does. And then, you know, we have this conversation after that. Look at it from his perspective and he's going, oh, I never, never really thought of that. So sometimes it's just in the field, having somebody remind you about the humanness of 
what other people are going through and that uh, if we're really sort of inwardly focused about how uh, how crappy our day is and how I'm probably not going to get coffee now because of this or whatever, we're doing a disservice to the whole profession because these people are going to have maybe one interaction in a couple of years with the police and they're going to tell this story at every gathering that they go to and nothing travels worse than bad news. The other thing part of that is the accountability issue of making sure that they're doing that consistently and they're not just doing it once and then forgetting it. Yeah, and it's it's tough. Unfortunately, I find that the communication type training falls under this umbrella of sort of soft skills and everybody wants to be kicking ass and taking names and learning all these fancy techniques and they want trigger time and stuff. But when you actually get them to talk to people, everybody goes, ah, I got this. I got this. I know how to talk to people. I've been talking to people my whole life. And you know what? Some of them do a great job and some of them really don't. We've been very fortunate in the Calgary Police that we we brought in the verbal judo program back in like mid to early 2000s. And that's been rolled out, not just in the classroom setting, but in a 40 hour training block with role players and specific scenarios, etc., cetera, to, to give the officers experience in using some of those things. And then some ongoing training as well with that. So you know, going to places like Ilita and talking to other officers and other officers from other agencies. I don't know of any other agency that spends that much time just on talking to people. And then in my opinion, it's still not enough. That's something that we can be continually doing. And it's a, it's a tough sell. If we want our people talking to people, then our training has to, has to show that. We have to invest in that training because if it's not in the training, when it becomes a high stress situation, they're going to revert to the stuff that with the training we do under high stress, which usually does not involve communicating at all other than get down. Yeah. At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy. Because you deserve more. You mentioned a while ago about uh, the training environment replicating what's going to be out there. I would imagine that Canada is a lot like Michigan, that there's about six months of the year where you dress differently than the other six months of the year. It's seemingly very, very simple, but what you wear has an impact on how you perform your job. I remember before we got our own range, we'd go to this one range and it, it was hotter than Hades in there. I mean, it was so hot and you get guys coming to shoot and it was like they were going to a strip club. They were taking everything off gloves and hats and jackets and everything. And so finally, when we got our own range, we, we started making it as cold inside as it was outside. And whatever they stepped out of the car wearing, they had to shoot with. So I can't get my finger in, in the trigger housing. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> because you're not going to get a chance in the middle of the Stand by for a second, take your gloves off and then engage. For sure. I love what you talk about the communication training. Communication is not a soft skill. It's a vital skill. And the fact that you guys put that much effort into it, it just shows how advanced your agency was. But you know what, though, as it does with the best of us, we get older. At some point, you made the decision to pull the plug and join the rank of the retirees. You decided that you were going to do something useful and you wrote a book. And that's what I want to talk about now. And Brent talked about in the beginning. Tell me the name of your book and tell me what it's about and then tell me why you wrote it. 
All right, so it's called Kick-Ass Presentations, Wow Audiences with PowerPoint slides that click, humor that's quick, and messages that stick. And this sort of journey uh, for me started about a decade ago when I left our full-time training academy. Uh, I had some other instructors go, hey, would you put together a course on how to actually teach? and come back and deliver that to us. And I thought, oh man, okay, well, obviously I'm doing, I was doing something right. Some things I know that I'm doing and probably a bunch that I don't. And I really took that as a, as a personal challenge. And it took me a couple of years to really collect these little gems of wisdom and put them into something useful. I find with a lot of presentation training, there's a lot of people telling you what to do, but not how to do it. They go, you know, Michael, you gotta be dynamic. You got to engage your audience and all this. And people go, oh, this is such good stuff. But it's like eating cotton candy. You know, there's just, it tastes great, but there's no nutritional value. It doesn't fill you up. So <laughs> if I'm going to teach or if I'm going to give people advice or teach them something, I really want to have something backing that. And if I can't walk them through the steps of it, at least maybe I can provide a bunch of really solid examples of, of how it's done at a level that isn't so far down the road that people just turn off. So I started putting together this workshop on how to be a more effective trainer. And then a good friend of mine who's an author kept going, you got to put this in a book. You got to write this in a book. And so I started writing and people say, how long did it take you to write this book? And I say five years and they go, wow, like I sat down for eight hours a day for five years. It wasn't like that. I would, you know, you do a, a day or an hour or two here and you put it down maybe for months at a time and you pick it back up. And, and uh, it really wasn't until I, I left policing that I said, okay, I got to put the hammer down on this. There's a guy named Roy Vaden, and he says that we are most powerfully positioned to help the person that we once were. The person that I once was, was a full-time trainer. And so I wrote the book that I wish I had when I started. Actually, I wish I had this when I left training because I'm better now than I was even a year ago with this stuff. Really, it's, it's designed to walk instructors through what to do to make to make things engaging and ultimately get that behavior change that they're looking for because when we when we look at what's really the goal of training if you want to take the you know the sort of scientific approach it's retention and transfer what does that mean it just means that you can remember it and then you can actually do the thing in the environment that you need to do it in i really want my students to have that behavior change so that starts with them paying attention so that they can remember so that they can actually do the thing. And so I, I put it into this book and I uh, was very uh, thankful with, with my publisher to be able to get some advanced copies to have at the ILETA conference this year. Let me walk you through a couple of things here. Uh, number one, we're going to have in our show notes where people can go to purchase the book because it's a book I highly recommend. I'm going to just bring up some of my favorite quotes from the book. Okay. Quote number one, we have to have substance before we can add sparkle thought that that was put so well because it's a fine line between substance and entertainment. I believe we need to have both, but there are a lot of people that focus way too much on the entertainment side. Have you found that to be true with you as well? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's definitely some people who are just very charismatic. They're funny. They can load their stuff up with funny videos or whatever. But again, afterwards, you're kind of going, what was the point of that? That was interesting. <laughs> or it was like, it wasn't a dry hour of death by PowerPoint, but is this really effective? that training. So uh, if we can get those people to just get on board with making sure that their stuff is is effective and useful, then uh, we, we got this thing licked. Bedazzling only goes so far, doesn't it? That's right. 
<laughs> from a guy who grew up down south, uh, there was a saying that involved lipstick and a pig. I loved how you put that. But here's another one. Using expressions that everyone has heard a hundred times is like the waiter bringing your fajitas to the table after they've had a chance to cool. They'll still get eaten, but they won't have that sizzle. <laughs> it, it's amazing to me from a training perspective how many people are using the presentations that they used two years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago and the world has changed people have changed yet our substance hasn't changed it's one of those things that if you are going to be a good trainer your stuff needs to all be in beta all the time there can never be a final this is it we're good this is now the package and we're moving forward with it because we've all sat in those presentations where you just look at the slides and you're magically transported back to <laughs> 1999 and you're going oh my goodness and it's just yeah um so yeah not only with our our expressions and and things like that but with all of our training if we can kind of at least keep it updated and you know keep learning about what the latest things are and keep up with those trends and be constantly injecting it so that it's relevant because when people hear about uh, you know what we're going to talk about a case that happened maybe there's a salient one from 20 years ago but let's relate this to one that just happened last month you know and everybody goes ah we've all seen this video and we were talking about it at coffee and stuff that grabs people's attention it's one of those things where we think we're giving out valuable information, but if it's information that has been delivered over and over again, it, it begins to lose its effectiveness because that's when you do get that senior officer that sits there in your class with your arm, their arms folded. It's like for the love of everything that's good and right. I heard this last year and the year before and the year before. Another one here. Easy learning is like writing in the sand. It's fun, but it doesn't last long. Brian Willis is, is a big advocate of desirable difficulties. As a trainer, it's important that we design training that is attainable, but requires work. Yet there's a lot of people in this profession that they want to be brought in and spoon fed without uh, any type of assessment, walk out with their certificate. And they think that that is going to benefit them, but that really doesn't, does it? No. And uh, there's so much like the research is unequivocal around interleaved versus block training. And so if, if you're, if you're not familiar with that for the listeners, basically, instead of coming in and doing say the same thing over and over. Let's say, you know, you're doing, I don't know, handcuffing and you're going to teach the recruits or maybe this is in service and they come in and they're going to do handcuffing and okay, we're going to do 10 reps of cooperative person standing handcuffing and then, okay, officers move and we're going to do this again. And it's easy. We can put our minds on cruise control and just kind of do this over and over. What the research shows is that that does not translate. It doesn't stick in the mind. What does is mixing things up. So even if you're starting to learn a new skill and maybe you don't have it completely down yet, oh, we're switching. We're going into a different type of task and you go, hold on a second. I didn't totally have that last one down yet. Hey, that's okay. We're going to come back to that one. And what that does is it allows for a little bit of forgetting. And now you need to dig into your mind and go, wait a second, how did I do this again? Okay. And you're walking yourself through and you are really figuring out in your mind, where do I need to go to get this? Because we can't be on that cruise control. That's really applicable to so many skills. But here's the thing. It's 
harder for the instructor and it's harder for the student. Most police training is just not set up that way. So I, I think that'll be one of those things is so long as the message is getting out, that will be something that is going to hopefully change in police training culture over the next decade where we won't have so many officers just wanting to teach like they were taught. There's better ways to do it and a ton of research to back that up. And a lot of times we, we like to blame it on the students. You know, the students don't want to be challenged, but we're honest with each other. Most of the time we don't do it that way because the instructor feels comfortable with the way that they are doing things and the way that they have done things. And it always has to be about the student. And if we look at that, then we should be willing to put ourselves out there. Yeah, 100%. And when we do those type of training sessions, we get deceived because there's this illusion of learning that happened because if you test them at the end of the session, they're actually going to test better if they've had 100 reps of the same thing. They can do that. But what the research shows is that that skill is not going to be embedded in the mind. You're not going to be able to perform that later, certainly not under stress and those kind of things. So we're, we're all deceived because what we often do is test students at the end of the session. We give a check in the box and away we go. And meanwhile, when they really need this in months or maybe years down the road, it's just it's not there for them. And then we want to blame the officers that they're not following their training. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's fascinating. And there's there's uh, so much good research around that. It really comes, it comes back to taking ourselves out of our comfort zone, to putting ourselves in some place that we've never been before. You don't only preach that, but you live it too. So I got to bring something up here. You took up stand-up comedy, not when you were 17, when you joined the military. How old were you when you started doing stand-up? I was 40 years old, 40 years 40 old. Years you just old. wake up one day and say, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> You know, I have to, in a way, I have to credit my my wife for that. We, we were on this transformation weekend. It's not a Tony Robbins, but imagine that kind of thing. And and uh, and and they, one of the drills they had was that you had to put down all your goals and then basically narrow it down to a goal for that year that was kind of just out of your reach. And stand-up comedy has been, I've been a fan my whole life and I've envied stand-up comics and I just never actually went and went ahead and did it. So here I am at this event and there's a you know, 150 people. And at the end of the, the Friday night, you had to write what you wanted to do on a sticky note and put it up at the front of the uh, of the room. And so they come to me on the Saturday and they go, hey, so where are you with this whole stand up thing? And I said, I, I'm nowhere. Like, I, I it's just something I would I think I would like to do. And they go, OK, sounds good. Well, later that afternoon, they start talking about taking actionable steps towards your goal and they start calling out names. And of course, and I'm looking, I've got I, my eyes are like saucers, like I know what's going to happen and I, and I they call my name and I go up to the front and they got somebody who she wants to be a triathlete but she doesn't know how to swim and they go okay great there's a uh, swim trainer in the pool hotel pool right now go ahead and meet them next person and it was like so they, of course they get to me and they say what's on your list and I should have thought of something cooking class say, something you know, you know exactly exactly <laughs> oh something but uh, of course I said stand up and they go well can you do some stand up for us seven to nine minutes in half an hour. And of course I'm going, I, okay, I can't say no here. And so I, you know, I bumbled my way through and I had somebody come to me after and go, if you want to get into stand up, talk to this person, they run some stand up classes. So I thought, great. So after this weekend, I, I get a hold of this guy and I sign up for this class. And then he calls me later and said, Hey, we had to cancel the class because of something, but I run a stand up competition. Do you want to come and enter this? And I said, well, I, I don't think you understand. I'm, I'm not a comic. I'm signing up to learn to do 
do that. And he goes, ah, just put together eight minutes of material and come to this hotel and all this. So I listen, eight I thought, minutes okay, is well, a lot I, of time. <laughs> It is so it's much time. time and I had no idea. I'm a dumbass, and I'm like, oh, okay, eight minutes. So, and I, you know, I, sh I, I invite all my friends and family for you the, you know, just, people it, out for it, this. Oh my god, it, it was yeah. Um, you know, I look back and I just chuckle now. And so I show up and I'm in this pre-show meeting with all these pothead comics, and I'm the only <laughs> cop there. And they go, okay, so the set list is changing, or it's gonna your time's now down uh, from eight minutes to seven, and you had to be within. 30 seconds of either side or you lose points or some damn thing. And so I go, oh my God, I don't even know what seven minutes is. And so, oh man, I was, I was, uh, you know, definitely out of my comfort zone. So I went and bumbled my way through and then obviously got a couple of laughs and liked it enough that I, I kept doing it. And now I've, you know, done comedy in three countries and hundreds of shows. And it's what I didn't realize at the time was how much it would be applicable to my job as a trainer. And I really started looking at, man, there's all these concepts that you learn doing stand-up comedy are absolutely applicable to the classroom. And so I really started bringing that in. And that's one of the, one of ends up being one of the features in the book is how to add humor. Because a lot of people go, well, that's fine if you're a funny guy, but if you're, if you're not, how do you do this? Well, there's actually a lot of formula to it. And once you figure that out, um, you know, it's not about having your audience rolling on the floor. Like that's, it's probably not going to happen. Most professional comics can't even make that happen. But what you can do is get people just kind of smirking and going, uh, okay, I see what you did there. Or that was a, that was a terrible pun. What I tell people is that, look, if you showed up to a presentation, you had two identical presentations and in one, you're not going to laugh at all. There's going to be nothing humorous. But in the other, during the hour of that presentation, you're going to chuckle one time. Which one are you going into? You're going to take the one where you laugh every time. So as trainers, we should be purposeful about building in some of this good emotion into our training because as audience members, that's what we want. People want authenticity and they want realism. And you can bring that into your comedy. Do you bring elements of your past life in law enforcement into your act. I was just curious if that makes an appearance at all. For sure. Yeah. Everybody wants to sit for it. It's, it's a, you know, my department wasn't a big fan of me doing stand up, but I, I never, I, I never, I never said who I worked for or anything like that. But, uh, but certainly, you know, that was one of the, th I got known to be, oh, you're the, you're the comedy cop guy because it's so different. And everybody loves a little bit of a look into the job, right? You look at how many TV shows there are about police officers versus, you know, other emergency responder jobs. People are, are fascinated by it. And so to, to bring in some of the humor from the job and present that in a, in a comedy setting is, has, yeah, absolutely has leverage. I can't that. imagine the stoner comics are too thrilled with you being there. I'm just saying. <laughs> Yeah, you know, well, uh, marijuana is completely legal in Canada, oh, so it's not, a, not a big deal anymore. Yep. One of the things that, that I think that comics get a lot more often, perhaps, than police trainers is that they understand that they have to carry the room. They need to keep it engaged. And there are too many trainers, unfortunately, that don't care 
if the room's engaged, man, if a comic goes to something that's not working, that they're on to something else. Because once you lose the room, you've lost that connection. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's really important. But I have to let you know, I should have let you know this earlier. We are in the presence of comedic genius. Dan, I've got to ask you, how does it feel to be the two-time Yuck Yucks Calgary Roast Battle Champion? How's that for you? <laughs> well, it's uh, it's a it's a ton of work. So if people aren't familiar with roast battle, that's where the comics, you know, kind of go at each other and uh, and really make fun of each other. And it's it's been for whatever reason because I'm normally I, I'm a nice guy, but for whatever reason I can <laughs> go very dark very quickly. And and people tend to, to look at those type of things and, and go, oh, there this is all off the cuff. And really, I'm not that quick. What I do is spend a lot of time writing and. <laughs> And, and just being absolutely savage with people, and that that has propelled me up to you know I've I've had a lot of opportunities through uh, through roast battle, and it's actually been really sort of refreshing in our day and age of everybody being offended by everything. That roast battle still draws huge crowds because it's one of those places where the gloves are off. Everybody knows that uh, you know it's all jokes, and uh, nobody's going there and uh, looking to be offended by anything. So it's it's kind kind of refreshing these do they uh, the other folks do they specifically go after your background as a trainer and in law enforcement i mean i, I have to imagine you get, oh my you get god roasted terribly over that absolutely you you take every stereotype a negative stereotype of law enforcement and just <laughs> dial it up to a thousand uh, but you know to me that's too easy that i would go with something more difficult well, you know yeah yeah well and if you're doing say seven or nine jokes back and forth they can't all be about law enforcement so it's got to be you <laughs> Yeah, you're you're looking for different angles and to keep the keep the crowd engaged and stuff. But certainly, that's that's the first thing is that it's uh, it's open season on on me being a police officer, which it's fun. Yeah, it's all in fun. That's the ground ball to get things rolling. Yeah. So, do you have any uh, shows coming up anytime soon? Um, nothing that is scheduled that I would you know, put out to the public kind of thing. It's, it's more, it's more, um, open mic type of stuff where I, I look at it as, is I'm, I'm going to the gym, right. And it's, I try and make it entertaining and stuff, but really it's a, it's a workout because people are so used to seeing these polished comics on their Netflix special. Well, these people have been doing it for 20 years and that hour they've toured the whole country with, and it is dialed in. But what you don't see is all of the, the horrifying background stuff where people are working working those jokes out or they have a concept and they're trying to find the funny in there. And unlike, you know, being a musician, you can write a song in your basement and you have a song. A joke isn't really a joke until you've told it to a live audience and you can walk out of your house thinking, man, I've, I've done it before. Oh, this is gold. And you get in front of our live audience and it's just crickets and uh, okay, well, that one needs some work. So there's, uh, so the, uh, it's more of those type of shows right now of, uh, of working out material. Well, I appreciate what you said there because early in your career as a trainer, you said that you were looking for opportunities to be able to, to volunteer and plug yourself in so that you could practice your craft. Right. And that's what, that's what you're doing as a comedian. That's one thing I would encourage our young trainers to do. Look for those chances to plug yourself in because you're only going to get better through practice. Yeah, there's no substitute for stage time. 
like there really isn't. And so if you can get yourself in front of any kind of group and take the time to master your subject so that you know what you're talking about and you have it dialed in, uh, that's going to be invaluable. And, uh, you know, that's that's certainly helped me just just building the amount of, of time and experience that I have now is because I took all those opportunities and kind of hustled while I was waiting. That's time that you can't get back. So people are nervous. They want to have it be everything be perfect. It's not going to be. You got to you got to get up there and, and just start doing it and you'll get better with time and with feedback. Told you I was a little bit nervous about today, in large part because of the, the the roast champion that we have here. But he was kind to us. As we wrap things up here, I continue to be amazed at not only the service orientation of our people, their willingness to help others and the breadth of their efforts. I'll be honest with you, before I heard Dan talk about stand-up comedy, I never, ever would have put training and stand-up comedy together. It's so, so nice being able to learn from these folks. So Yeah, and we want people to find you. Where can they find you? Where's your website? Where can they find you on social media? Which social medias are you on? Where can they get a hold of you? Yeah, I'm kind of uh, all over the the socials. The the one I typically direct people to is Instagram, uh, which is uh, kickass underscore presentations, or they can go to my website, which is frasertrainingsolutions.com. If they just even look for my book on Amazon or that kind of thing, you're going to find links that are, that's going to send you there. So yeah, I, I won't, uh, I won't put it all out there, but if, uh, but I'll say Instagram and then my, uh, my website. Okay. And we'll put all that stuff in the show notes so uh, folks can find it. And again, the name of that book is kick-ass presentations. Wow. Audiences with PowerPoint slides that click humor. That's quick and messages that stick. Great title, by the way. Thank you. Very memorable. We mentioned a couple of folks during this episode, Brian Willis. I uh, mentioned Justin Witt. If you guys want to go back and listen to some of those episodes, the Brian Willis one was very interesting where he talked about his early career, much uh, very similar to Dan. You can find all those on our website at Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. Brand new episodes each and every Tuesday morning. Dan, thank you so much for taking time on a Canadian holiday to speak with us today. Uh, it's been my pleasure. It's, uh, I, I enjoy the podcast and uh, just I'm so thankful for uh, being Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for the opportunity that you guys have given me to uh, have this conversation today. Mm-hmm.